The reading of the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verses uh, uh, 5, the latter half of verse 5 to verse 7. So uh, let us hear the word uh, in faith and also with uh, uh, thanksgiving that God's word has been preserved for us uh, in the scriptures. So Isaiah chapter 64. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The final section of the prophet Isaiah amounts to a very passionate lament as the prophet prays for God to intervene in the life of the nation uh, and it's really a, a call for revival. He wants God to come and revive his people because they are lifeless. Uh, and the need for revival is in this prayer uh, where the prophet details the spiritual condition of the nation. But beyond the nation, the spiritual condition of all of us. Uh, it is also a statement of fault. Uh, not unlike a grand epidemic in our own country, the uh, people are saying, uh, we need revival because uh, God won't show up. Well, he won't show up because of their sin. Uh, it's interesting how we have a way of pointing fingers, is it not? And here they're pointing fingers at God, but really uh, the prophet uh, gives them a mirror for them to look at themselves. But beyond looking at themselves, uh, it's a picture of all of us, uh, particularly if you uh, know not uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. The essence of uh, the lament here in our prayer is that despair and hopelessness prevail totally unless God comes to revive his people. True in the days of the prophet, but so true today. So true today. Well, a key to salvation, of course, is in recognizing one's spiritual condition. Perhaps that's the essence of uh, uh, the prophet's lament this morning, uh, for him to uh, enable the people to see why God has not shown up. Uh, it's an account as well of our own fallen condition and total inability before God. It's interesting that uh, I use these words, but uh, they uh, are an easy extraction from the lament this morning from the prophet. Uh, but it's interesting because most Christian denominations deny uh, our condition before God and our total inability. Uh, most affirm that we uh, have some life, that we have some ability, and that's the basis for God holding us responsible. Uh, so they would deny these great doctrinal statements, but more radically, they deny the words of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, on a more pointed sense, it's my own uh, deep conviction that God will never come in revival, never come in revival. 
unless we understand who we are outside of Jesus Christ. And unless we understand that we totally need him because there is nothing within us or about us to cause him to turn to us and revive us, and as well that he will only come if he gets all the glory because he does all the work. That's foreign to the theology of most churches in America today. And while I hope I'm desperately wrong, that's why I believe that most men do not think they need to be revived, and nor do churches think that they need revival themselves. Well, the text is a lament and confession of our lostness and our need from God. Uh, the need for salvation, of course, begins with our separation from God, uh, chiefly in the first verse of our reading this morning, uh, that God is angry because we sin. The uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest of all the versions, uh, use a verb which gives rise to our English word for orgasm, expressing God's violent revulsion uh, for the sin of all mankind. I'm reminded of the words of uh, a very well-known Reformed preacher in the United Kingdom in the 20th century, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, was asked six months before he died to give some advice to people, and here was his advice. Flee the wrath to come. It's something that we should all take to heart because God is angry with sinners. Uh, It's interesting, of course, uh, the Bible declares this as, uh, uh, as a statement, but we typically discount it because we don't feel the anger. Uh, the American culture is a culture of feeling. If we don't feel it, we don't think that it's true. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of this is one of the greatest art thieves of all time, Hermann Goring of, uh, of uh, Nazi Germany probably only eclipsed as an art thief by Adolf Hitler and the Russians in the Second World War. Uh, Goring, uh, during the Nuremberg trials, was of course accused of being an art thief in which he again was perhaps uh, one of the greatest in all of the world in stealing people's art uh, all over Western uh, Europe. He was incensed by this charge. I didn't steal any art. I bought it. I paid for it. In fact, I had, he would say, people sign a form in triplicate that I was paying for them. Of course, little did he admit that they were signing uh, the form in triplicate under duress, that he was giving them below market prices, and that the prices were held in trust of which the owners of the art never received a dime. But he felt himself to be innocent. We think ourselves to be the same before God. Because we don't feel sin, we don't feel his anger, we think that we are innocent. Uh, But the prophet tells us otherwise. Uh, Worse sin, Isaiah says, is continuous. Uh, it It is something that Isaiah says that we continued in our sins for the continuity of our lives. Sin, of course, is evidence of a deeper problem. It's not just the actions of our disobedience before God. It's who we are. Uh, We're sinners by nature. Uh, As a lion is ferocious, 
We are sinners by nature. One of the great uh, small and little-known works of art that comes out of the Renaissance is a painting titled The Sin. Interesting to me that the uh, painter, the artist, used a definite article, The Sin. It's a picture of a remarkably beautiful woman that I think is really Eve in the garden. And wrapped around her is a horrific-looking serpent, uh, so large that to me it has to be a constrictor. And the head of the serpent is right next to the woman's head. You, you, you kind of keep going back and forth, a beautiful woman, and then this ugly, terrible, horrendous head of a, of a large constrictor. And the fangs of the serpent are bared so are all of us to see. And the point of the text, the point of the work of art, the point of the painting is that the serpent owns the woman, owns her body, owns her mind, owns everything about her. And of course, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, they were driven out of the garden. It's a reminder that even the artist understood that we are sinners by nature and it has dominion over us totally and irrevocably. And because of sin, we lost communion with God and are under his wrath. But it's much worse than this, of course. And and in a sense, the prophet Isaiah gives us an ever-cascading intensity of our lostness uh, before God. And that we are in total desperate need for God to revive us. And if he does not revive us, we will be lost forever. And the point of the text is for us to understand who we are and what we have done before God. And that we need him totally, not just a little bit, not just in stages, but totally, and we need him now. But notice the heartfelt cry in the latter part of verse 5. I think it's the greatest question of all time, and shall we be saved? Because if God does not come and revive the individual, or revive a church, or perhaps even in a larger sense, revive a nation, we will not be saved. We cannot be saved. There is no salvation whatsoever. It is, I think, the single greatest question that an individual could ever ask, a church could ever ask, shall we be saved? And again, I think if you do not understand the depth of our sin, you little need God to come to save you. Maybe you need just a spark. Maybe you just need a little bit of him, but the prophet has otherwise. Shall we be saved? Reminded of the great question that drove Martin Luther to understand the magnificence of the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Here was his question, have I done enough? And if God is infinitely perfect for all time, you cannot do enough. And all that you could do is but chump change before a God who burns in absolute, total holiness and the slightest of infraction is detested by him, for which he is angry forever. Have I done enough? Think about it. If you think salvation is some works-oriented self-help program, that should be your question. Have I done enough? And the answer is, you could never do enough because God is eternally perfect and cannot be bought off by the cheapness of our works. The need for salvation is also in the absence of righteousness and corruption. 
We have and bring nothing to salvation. Uh, notice uh, the sixth verse. We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Uh, the word unclean is a cultic term that excluded one from divine blessings and presence. It's a picture of the leper, is it not, in the Old Testament. The leper was unclean. He could not go to the cultist to worship God. In fact, everywhere he went, he had to cry out that he was unclean because he was a leper. Much worse, he couldn't heal himself. A great text here that uh, speaks uh, to the fallenness of uh, the nation, the book of Haggai, chapter 2, in the 14th verse. So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. It's something of the picture that uh, our Lord uh, gives of uh, the righteous men of his own day, the Pharisees. He says, uh, your outside is beautiful, uh, but your inside is dead and ugly. You're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but on the inside is every, every imaginable iniquity. And again, he is speaking of some of the most righteous men of his day who, who thought they kept the law who obeyed it, they thought, in its entirety, and had stature before men because of the greatness of their works. And in one swoop of a statement, Christ uh, consigns them uh, to the lostness of their condition, and we see the theology of it in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this reality is cemented in the following. All our righteous uh, deeds are like filthy garments. It's a prevailing statement that ought to provoke the greatest of thought because most religions today, in fact, most Christian religions today are based on the concepts that we do good works and they qualify us for divine acceptance. This text excludes this reality in its totality. Here again, the word of the Lord, all our righteousness are filthy rags. We are unqualified and cannot qualify ourselves. The word garment in the Hebrew Bible is literally minstrel rags. In the Levitical system, this rendered a woman unclean. There were, of course, provisions for the woman in purification. Here there are none, no provisions whatsoever. All of our works are unclean. Succinctly, all of our works are excluded. The reality is that we are not saved by our works, but rather the work of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would remind you, for those of you who know people, who think that they can work their way into heaven. And even if they don't work their way good enough and go to purgatory, that someone will work for them to get them out of purgatory. This one verse flies in the face of that vacuous theology, detailing that we are, ladies and gentlemen, in a desperate way before God. All our lives are given to work. We go to work and we're rewarded as we should be. Now, we save as we should be. Here we cannot work. 
and there is nothing to save whatsoever. It points us again that our salvation is riveted to the works in the entirety, the works of another, an alien work in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the works of Christ and the merits thereof are the only provision that is acceptable for, for God. Because we are imperfect, we are temporal, and we are unclean. I might remind you again that uh, most Christians in Oklahoma City today got up to go to a church that uh, uh, would affirm that there is a priestly service that can absolve them of their sins. Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, as well as uh, Episcopalianism, that priests offer absolution by human priests. How can this be? How can this be? If the priests themselves are fallen men, temporal, and can render no good work before God, it is as if they belittle the work of Jesus Christ by thinking that they can stand in his stead. This verse says that they are wrong. That even the righteous works of a priest seemingly dispensing grace fall short because there is only one that can dispense grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolution by human priests is a perilous theology. Absent Christ, we do not make ourselves acceptable. He does. And God will only take what God provides, for our works are to no avail. That Christianity is not a self-help religion. Some of you might be saying, well, that's great. That means I don't have to work as a Christian. Again, you are mixing theology here. Post-conversion works are evidence of true faith, not the cause of it. But this is the point of conversion. It's why God has not come to revive ancient Israel, and it's why, based upon the theology of the prophet Isaiah, I don't believe he will come today, because we do not see ourselves as lost. That critical to salvation, critical to revival, critical and absolutely necessary to conversion is for a man and woman or boy or girl to recognize that they are totally lost, and only God can save them. It's like the sinners standing before the temple way, way behind the righteous Pharisee who says to himself, God, save me, the sinner. Because that is what we are. The sinner before God. We have no right to come to him. We merit nothing. No one can do it for us save Jesus Christ. That is the beginning point of revival of the individual, or revival of a church, or revival of a family or a nation, to recognize we bring nothing and have nothing. And there is only one who does have and who is able. The need for salvation, of course, is the reality that death will consume us. In America today, death is a biological event. Sometimes people think they can cheat death. I was watching this television pro program the other day where there's this cryogenic facility where you can uh, cut off your head and they'll freeze it for you and uh, someday when they find some cure, whatever, you can come to life again. And some people uh, go, the, go the distance. I mean, they just take their whole bodies there and pay some outlandish fee and they freeze the body and when they discover the cure or whatever, they can be brought to life. Really? Really? What a cheap lie. But they take your money. 
and you get nothing. You will get nothing because it's a sham and it's false. The prophet Isaiah is telling us that death will consume us. Adam and Eve had the option to live forever. They forsook it. And we are now totally and utterly temporal. Notice the word of the prophet in verse 6. All of us wither like a leaf. Uh, This uh, theology conceptually is found, uh, interestingly enough, in the first chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 30, the context really is that of their chief sin, namely idolatry. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 30, for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away. That every autumn season ought to remind us that we are temporal beings and our leaves will eventually turn brown and drop from the tree and we will die And apart from Christ, we will enter a Christless eternity. It's the same reality of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. All flesh is this grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. It shouts at us of how infinitely small We are because we are infinitely insignificant and temporal and we are like the grass that is cut and turns brown and is shoved away uh, into the ash heap uh, of history and time. Carries us away like the wind of our finite insignificance. That even if you become rich and famous and have a building named after you, one day, one day, mark my words, it will be torn down. And you will be forgotten little after you die. And the students that walk by your dorm named after you will little know whoever you were and quite frankly could care less. Because we are like the flower that fades and only the word of God will stand forever. It is all in its entirety in the cryptic, brief words of the prophet, an aspect of judgment. Furthermore, verse 7, there's none who calls on thy name. No wonder there's no revival. They don't even call upon God because they don't need God because they don't see themselves as sinners and lost in total desperate need. Uh, Maybe they need just a shot or maybe something from the pharmacist or maybe the priest can do something in their stead as we think that he will. Or maybe we can write a check that's big enough and redeem our soul. And the prophet says over and over, we can do nothing. No one calls upon God or arouses himself from the stupor of sin to take hold of God. Uh, uh, The great apostle Paul, citing the Old Testament, seals this reality in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. The Old Testament testifies to this. The New Testament ratifies it. And we think we can write a check. Go to a human priest. 
ignore God. The end of our lives, get right with him. When the prophet says, there is none who seeks for God, no, not one. There is none who are righteousness. There is none who seeks for God. And so in the depth of the lament of the prophet Isaiah, there will not be revival in the American church when we reject these great doctrinal statements like total, total depravity and total inability. Because if you reject them, little do you need God to come and revive your soul. And if you little need him, he will little come. That God has hidden, hidden himself from them, worse than the lack of responsiveness, God has concealed himself from us, meaning that he cannot be found. Isaiah uh, chapter 64, uh, verse 7, For thou hast hidden thy face from us, and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Again, this theology is not new to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it begins, begins the book. Again, Roman, uh, pardon me, Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Lastly, you make us, this is an interesting translation in the New American Standard. Us delivered us into the power of our iniquities. It's, it's a translation taken after some of the versions. Uh, the Masoretic text uh, says, literally, you make us melt away into the power of our sin. Melt away. What a great picture of humanity and our infinite insignificance. Reminded every now and then when you go to a restaurant or someone has uh, uh, sculpted a beautiful piece of ice sculpture. Always amazed at the, what people can do. How do they do that? get an ice pick, but how do you get this beautiful sculpture? But you come back in four or five hours, let me tell you what you see. Puddle of water on the table, under the table. It was once beautiful. It was once the object of admiration. Then it's just like all the other water in the world to be discarded and mopped up by the janitorial staff. And God help us if we think that we are significant because of who we are and what we've done and what we can do before an infinitely righteous and holy God. And that if we little need him, he will little come to save us. If left to ourselves, the power of sin effaces and sets total ruin in motion as inevitable and unstoppable. That's our condition. Thankfully, in God's grace, it's not the end of the matter. Uh, because grace has an answer. The need for salvation is met by God. Left to ourselves, we are doomed and all is lost. Thankfully, uh, God has not left his people to wander self-directed uh, into eternal ruin. It's essential for understanding for us to recognize that we were powerless and unable to reverse the effects of sin. That the answer to our fallen estate is retrospectively found in the prophet Isaiah himself. 
Uh, listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah respecting the great servant son uh, that I believe is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It was laid upon him for his people uh, to set in motion that his righteousness might justify, Isaiah says, the many. The theology of vicarious and substitutionary atonement made absolutely necessary by our total depravity and total, utter inability uh, before God. That, uh, that, that Messiah and all of his perfections will render a payment of infinite value, vacate the dead, and set in motion our full and complete recovery but only he can do it, only he will do it if he will. Isaiah's theology, of course, is the new creation and new exodus, but without question, it is his initiative, his provision in his work alone. The servant son is the entire and complete difference. Matthew says in the first chapter of his great gospel, he will come and save, he will come and save, he will come and save his people from their sin. The Apostle Paul, of course, also speaks the devastation of sin. We were born dead in sin. Our fallen nature controlled us so that Paul calls us children of wrath. And we lived under the power of the devil. And we walked after the course of the world and we could not change our very nature. No more can a lion change the ferocity of its character than can we change the ferocity of our sinfulness before an absolutely perfect God. But, but Paul says, as you know, those beautiful words, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He affects the salvation. He resurrects us because dead men cannot resurrect themselves, much less qualify themselves before the throne of infinite mercy. It's a theology that's captured, I think, in another sense in the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you. The Apostle Paul uses the passive voice, meaning we were acted upon. We could not give to get, but God gave us grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 9, God is faithful, thank God, through whom you were called, again, passive voice, into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called, God called you and made you alive. It's a reality that the call of God is efficacious. The call of God is irrevocable. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. So if you know Christ, you know him because he first you knew. If you love Christ, you love Christ because he first loved you. You were lost and he found you. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you are in a bad way. And the answer is only Christ and Christ alone. Remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I were traveling through some of the great cities of uh, Europe. Uh, we eventually would go to the town squares. All of the cities uh, would lead to a town square. And in all of them I can remember, 
there was a monument celebrating the end of the bubonic plague. It's terrible devastation. The plague of sin is much worse. We cannot calculate its devastation, save from the theology of the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul, and everyone else in Holy Scripture. But one thing is certain to be sure, uh, and that is, and that is, that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is the sole answer to our lostness. If you're a Christian, thank God. If you're not, sue for peace.